Welcome to the Kara's Kara's Digital Show and Podcast, where we explore the leading edge of wellness. I'm Kara Sundland. Today's episode is sponsored by the Center for Advanced Reproductive Services. So there are only a couple of months left of school, uh, and your kids are probably getting a little restless. Our teachers may be complaining they're not getting the work in, or maybe they're acting out. Is this just spring fever, or... Could it be ADHD? Child psychologist Dr. Laura Saunders from the Institute of Living is here to talk a little bit more about how we can tell the difference of what something is. Welcome, Dr. Saunders. Thank you for having me, Kara. Yeah, this is definitely the time where, especially with younger kids, I think teachers are aware of it, like, okay, they might be a little bit done. But um, if you have a child who maybe is consistently getting out of their seats or Maybe they're missing lots of careless things. I guess, what's the criteria? How do we know if it's normal or not? So that's a great question. And, and yes, I mean, you know, it's, it's springtime, even though it feels a little cold still. Um, you know, kids are getting antsy. They're still, in, you know, six weeks, sometimes eight weeks left of school. But they're antsy that, you know, they want, they need to change. There's been so much additional stress and pressure with covid um, and mask guidelines and releasing mask guidelines. So I do worry about kids. What are they going, you know, how are they behaving? How is their energy level? But what we need to know is that if a child has an attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, it is at a level where their functioning in school or at home is hindered. And in order to make a diagnosis, you need it to be in more than one setting. So if, yes, they're just a little antsy in school, but they seem fine at home. That really doesn't count. It's also important to keep in mind is that children are fall within a, a, a range of what we call a bell curve of people with really good and very focused attention and not so good. And, and that's all even before it hits the point of being an actual disorder, an actual attentional disorder. So there's a pretty wide range of attentional issues that, that can be fairly typical um, and... Um, before it even hits a disorder. Um, so, and I, again, I like to use the words typical and atypical, not sort of normal and abnormal because that comes off as a judgment. Um, but there's, there's a, a range of attentional issues that might be deficient, but not necessarily reach the level of a disorder. Okay. So let's say you're curious. I don't know. Does my child have an attentional disorder or is this just spring fever? Is this normal? What's step one? So, Step one is to get some corroborating information or evidence. I love to go to teachers because teachers are, especially, you know, seasoned teachers, are really experts in children. And whether your child's in first grade or fifth grade or, or eighth grade, you know, talking with a teacher and getting their sense, is my child's motoric activity or attentional issues is it within the range of typical or does it seem to you to be out of the range of typical? Again, you're not asking them to make a diagnosis. You're simply asking them if what they're seeing in your child seems to be typical or atypical. Mm -hmm. And if a teacher who sees, you know, 20 to 25 kids a year and has X number of years experience says, I believe your child's attention and distractibility and impulsivity is outside the range of typical, then it's time to take it to the next level. Right, and we associate ADHD, especially uh, often with boys, with hyperactivity. But with girls, sometimes it can present differently, and sometimes that leads to them not being diagnosed because they might be very well-behaved. But in that case, 
it's maybe not as a parent, they're getting very distracted or they're daydreaming or they're missing large parts of what the teacher's saying. Yes. If, if um, an individual, it, it is a little more prevalent in, in females to not have the hyperactivity component. Um, so therefore, because the hyperactivity component and the impulsivity, like the blurting out, the calling out, difficulty sitting in your seat, tapping your pencil, annoying the person next to you, all those behaviors are very evident. And if it's outside the range of typical, um, it's easier to see. But if it's just sort of a poor, poor attention, inability to concentrate, um, distractibility that could be as much internal as external, um, it, without the hyperactivity, without the motoric component, it takes a little longer to diagnose. And, and in that situation, um, it's more common that girls who don't have the um, activity or motor component are not diagnosed with a, an attentional disorder until middle school or high school or even later. Um, and the way it gets picked up is <clears throat> as we get to middle school and high school, a lot of the assignments and, and work in school is, is more long-term. Sorry about that. Uh, more long-term and um, requires organization. And so with that, with that need for organization, which is affected by attention and concentration and distractibility, when they don't have those organizational skills, they start to fall apart. It starts to become evident that their functioning is hindered as they get into middle school and high school. Mm-hmm. And, and if you want to get some data, I mean, I guess I know in some cases you might start with your pediatrician and they might give you something like a Vanderbilt form or someone could actually even Google that. And because uh, some school districts are really proactive and others, you might have to do a lot of advocating yourself. Right. That's a very good point, Kara, because, yes, yeah, some districts are are on top of it and willing to, you know, make accommodations and help get a child diagnosed. And some districts are actually very resistant. And the reason they're resistant is because the more services they have to give to a child, the more money it costs them. And I'm just speaking frankly. I mean, some districts are great. Let's get our kids the, the whatever services they need. And some districts are just resistant. So it does require a parent to be an advocate and really, really um, step up and not, you know, if they believe that their child has a significant issue, not just take the initial sort of brush off. So it's going to require some advocacy. And as I said, really to make this diagnosis, you need to have deficiencies in attention and, and distractibility and impulsivity and, and even sleep, because believe it or not, these kids have sleep difficulties. Um, you want to see these, these difficulties or these deficits in more than one setting. So it's not just at home or it's not just at school. You might see it at sports too, right? The kid that's playing baseball and is in center field, you know, picking grass and running circles around himself because, you know, he can't stay attend, attentive to the situation. So you want to see that it's in multiple settings, um, but it does require most often for parents to be strong advocates for their kids. Yeah. And the decision, like you mentioned this before when we were talking, that medication, it may be something that really helps and evens the field for some cognitive issues, or it may just be that some of the accommodations might be the teacher saying, let's make sure you remind your child with a little tap did you turn in your homework or let's chunk this assignment for you some check-ins because these are things that when people might be thinking well why do I even want to get this diagnosis I don't want my kid labeled a certain way but if they get this uh, worked out when they're younger those accommodations can really help them do better in school right 
That's absolutely right. And, and here's what I, I say to parents all the time, is that the more you can create a sense of success for your child, the more they will invest themselves in whatever the activity is. And I don't care if the activity is school or playing baseball or soccer or being on the chess club um, or making friends, right? So if you realize a young child who has a high level of distractibility and impulsivity is going to have difficulty with friendships because he might blurt something out or he might take something from someone uh, that doesn't belong to him. So it's all these things. And and just think about these kids that that are at the top end of um, in the uh, attentional disorder, they get a lot of negative feedback, a lot of sort of like failure experiences all day. Sit down, stand up, get in line, stop fidgeting, stop talking to your neighbor, stop tapping the pencil, stop, you know, picking the grass out in center field, whatever it is. It's lots and lots and lots of negative feedback all day long. And that really starts to wear down the self-worth of that child. And so mm. the more we can get some accommodations and make some, you know, help that child have less of those sort of negative failure experiences, um, the more success they'll feel. Yeah. No, I mean, it makes a lot of sense. And, you know, the other thing that people are wondering about is, you know, we just did this on Great Day Connecticut, where there's a push to kind of do the infinity simple and do neurodiversity, whether it be autism or ADHD or all this. I guess, you know, a lot of people, when we were growing up, we maybe didn't get as many diagnoses. We also didn't get as much help. That didn't necessarily mean it was a good thing. Like the, the idea of teaching people their strengths and weaknesses is useful. Yes. I mean, that's, I mean, the, the sooner we learn as individuals, children, adolescents, young adults, adults, older adults, the sooner we learn how to identify our feelings, what are we good at? What are we not so good at? And we need, we need support with, right? You know, if, if someone's not so good at math, they shouldn't be going into accounting, right? I mean, if you're better with people, go into a helping field. So the sooner we know what our strengths are and what our, our deficits are, the better we can su- support our, ourselves or ha- support our children. Um, and it just creates better, successful human beings. The other thing I like to, to bring up in this situation, and we're really not talking about medication as a first-line intervention, although what we know with kids who have an attentional disorder is that medication can be extremely helpful. And the reason that it's helpful is because it limits those negative, that negative feedback loop that causes them so much distress. And I've had countless, countless parents say to me, I don't want to give my child a medication at a young age because it's going to make them a drug addict. And in fact, what the research shows is that the better we support through accommodations and sometimes medicate these kids who need it, not every kid, but those at the, at the upper end who really need that level of intervention, the better we help them early on, it does two things for them. It improves their impulse control and it improves their frustration tolerance. And when you have better impulse control and when you have better frustration tolerance, you are in fact, as an adolescent and young adult, less likely to get involved with substances. So in fact, what the research has shown is that for these individuals who do have severe attentional or motoric activity 
difficulties, the more intervention you get on the board early on, and sometimes that means medication, the less likely they are to turn to negative coping when they become adolescents and young adults. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, sometimes it's hard to figure out, like it might be something, whether it's ADHD or anxiety or something else, I guess it's where you would come in. If you, uh, That might be more of a case with inattentive or with girls, but um, can you talk a little bit about the difference of maybe how a child would present if it was more anxiety-driven, where they're just not able to do their work because they're thoughts are interfering or they're worried versus attention. Right. So that's a, that's another great distinction. So, and, and as you mentioned, there are self-report measures that, that, you know, school support personnel and, you know, can give your child in school or your pediatrician often has access to them. You can go see, you know, your local mental health agency or, you know, your town youth and family services. Um, there are self-report measures to try to rule that out. But you're right that sometimes it takes a more, um, a more de- kind of determined evaluation to look at, is this truly just an attentional issue that's you know, causing the distractibility and impulsivity, or is this driven by anxiety? And so, because sometimes it can look the same, right? Kids that are driven by anxiety um, do sometimes look distractible. It's hard for them to pay attention. But often the sources are different. And so it's ruling out what's the source of this, what you're seeing, the outward behavior, the outward symptom, what's driving it? Is it, is it you know, negative thoughts about their self-worth? Is it uh, worry about a parent? Is it you know, an obsessive thought that they have to do things in counts of threes? Whatever it is, is it is an anxiety thought or behavior that's driving this? Or is it more just like pure distractibility? Oh, I see a leaf on the tree. Let me tell you about leaves. Oh, I love to play with leaves. I love to play in a pile of leaves, right? You know, something that's just more kind of impulsive and distractive, distractibility um, with uh, showing deficits in attention. Yeah. Now, I know some pediatricians, when they're trying to weed it out, they might even just, uh, your pediatrician might suggest to you and say, you know what, let's try a medication trial for two weeks. Let's see what, how your child uh, reports, you know, does it really help them? And that sometimes in and of itself, if they're like, wow, this helped me so much more then you, then in, what do you think of that as, as a, as a criteria? Yeah. So, so again, I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm not a pediatrician. I'm not a medical doctor. I'm a psychologist, but in my experience, <clears throat> try, doing a medication trial, um, honestly, in the, some of these, the stimulant medications, have been around the longest of all, any of the medications we certainly use for any type of psychological or psychiatric disorder. Um, but when prescribed by a provider, it is okay to do a trial. And if it, if it gives your child that sense of, wow, it made my day easier. It was easier for me to pay attention in this class or you know, do my homework or, or listen to the directions that were given to me, listen to, you know, listen in, in when a lecture was being given. If it improves the quality of your child's life, why not try it? Because those are medications that are in and out of your system in a fairly short period of time. They're not long acting medications in your system for days. A lot of the antidepressants take, you know, weeks to build into your system. Um, so it, when prescribed by a licensed prescriber um, and, if that is an option that's offered to you as a parent, honestly, if it was my child, I would take it. 
It would take it. All right, lastly, um, as we're wrapping up here, there's also, it can be an expensive option if your insurance doesn't cover it, uh, but parents have the option of getting a neuropsych, and I understand that's sort of like an x-ray for a brain, uh, in that you can see and learn so much. Do you find that valuable for, for sort of weeding out what's really going on? I do find neuropsychological evaluations to be extremely valuable. Um, unfortunately, we can't give them to all kids because neuropsychological evaluations really give you a, a snapshot into a lot of the strengths and weaknesses in terms of what's sort of ba- based in the in in the brain functioning. Um, so, but I so I love to recommend that, but they are expensive. They are um, hard to get. So we try to reserve recommendations for neuropsycho- neuropsychological evaluations for those kids who have struggled for a, a significant period of time where even the interventions, sort of the first-line interventions, um, were not necessarily successful and we need more in-depth information. Mm-hmm. So uh, in closing, is there anything else? If parents are listening, um, any other resources? I know uh, w- one that... Um, I've consistently found great interviews from, and I think it's helpful, uh, CCMC recommends parents look at Attitude Magazine, which is like Attitude with a DD. But any other places people should be looking? Because, you know, honestly, you know your own kids. So there's places, there's tests, there's surveys, there's things you can be doing right now to kind of get to the bottom of things. Yes, and, and I think that's, though. you know, there's websites and all sorts of things. That's a good place to start. Um, but if you really feel like your child has a significant issue in the areas of attention, concentration, distractibility, and motoric activity, um, that you seek out some professional support and advice. You can start with your pediatrician. You can start with your school support personnel, your school social worker, your guidance counselor, your uh, school psychologist. Um, start with those folks, um, and then they can help you get access to additional resources. Perfect. All right, Dr. Laura Saunders, thank you so much for uh, sharing some in-depth answers for something that I know so many parents are, are struggling with. Thank you, Kara. Thank you. All right. And for all of you who are watching Kara's Cures, you can go back and watch other episodes on the cutting edge of wellness. You can find Dr. Laura Saunders right in Hartford at the Institute of Living. And you can also follow me on social media at Kara Sundlin. I post this content there. Have a great day and be well.